Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today, on a beautiful Easter weekend, at least here in Salt Lake City, I'm delighted to be joined by Tricia Fenton, who has been highly requested by people who are working in this event space because she is one of the giants of the industry. And I don't mean that in terms of physical size, but I mean, in, in terms of reputation and knowledge. So Tricia, it's really, really an honor to have you on the podcast this morning. How are you? Thank you. I'm I'm very well, and I'm very honored and and humbled to to be here with your your kind words. And um, I have been listening to your podcast um, over the course of you know since you've started it, and it's been a fantastic walk down memory lane. And I really appreciate what you're doing. And I know we had a, a quick chat um, beforehand about. Everybody gets together in a in a bar after an event and starts telling stories and saying, we should write a book. And I agree, this is in some ways a verbal book of what we've gone through. And and I think that Salt Lake was so fantastic to so many people. And just the work you're doing to capture the stories and the memories, it's it's really appreciated by by many of us. And and you know, I was talking to a few people earlier today about some of the podcasts and the and the memories. And it was it's really great to to have them all being told and capturing them. So thank you for the work that you're doing with that. Well, that's very, very kind of you, and I appreciate you you adding another chapter <laughs> to our book here of the Salt Lake 2002 game. So thank you so much for coming on and doing that. Before we start writing the chapter of Salt Lake 2002, though, why don't you give us a little bit of a preface by telling us a little bit what you're doing now and where you're joining us from? Well, I'm joining you on this lovely Easter weekend from Doha, where I'm currently doing some work with um, the World Cup soccer um, and or football, as many people around the world call it, is, except for the United States. And it's um, it's funny because it's not where I thought I'd be on this Easter Sunday weekend or Easter weekend. And I think, you know, a lot of the discussions in the podcasts, uh, particularly in the last year, have been about the pandemic and about refocusing and, and pivoting and, you know, about uh, if we had we'd been talking for a, a while about trying to, to get on here. When I say that, um, I think we touched base back in December and about a year ago, I was working with um, Expo. Um, in Dubai. And um, this year, the summer of 2021 was supposed to be the summer of Trish, where I was going to go and my husband and I were going to take the summer and travel around and and visit the world. And, um, you know, came the coronavirus and everything just halted. And um, the role that I had with Expo as head of... Um, broadcast there. And I know you had Amy Murray and uh, Derek Salisbury on earlier, and we were all there and uh, some several other people. And the and I I was at home when um, the uh, 
they closed. I was visiting um, home for a week and that turned into eight months um, because <laughs> they closed the airports and they closed the country of um, Dubai and the UAE. And so I worked remotely for a couple months before they laid off quite a few of their staff. So my summer of Trish of 2021 became quickly the summer of home projects of 2020. And <laughs> we, you know, it was in, in retrospect, it was one of the best things that happened to me. It was it hard. It was, I think everybody going through the pandemic has their ups and downs, but you know, I had a, a beautiful time with my husband. We were home. We, you know, to talk about traveling the world, we do that with our jobs. We have the opportunity, but to spend that quality time and um, I'm not sure my husband felt that way after a while, but, <laughs> you know, we did house projects. We, we, we just reconnected and in a way that, you know, when you're, you're all of a sudden your world becomes, you know, the four walls of your house and the yard and your, your backyard. And so it was, it was a beautiful time in that regard. And, and I was very fortunate that I was, um, stranded, I'd say not stranded, but, uh, back in the States and I could have been very easily caught in the UAE, but I was back in the States. So I was close enough to my family that if something had happened, I could be there for them. So I was very fortunate. And, um, during that time when things started opening up, you know, I started getting calls for different projects. I worked with Tony Vetrano on um, the DNC, which it went from this mega event to a very small event and a couple other projects with um, friends that had contacted me, many from, from Salt Lake, and they, they kind of um, disappeared as many people's um, jobs disappeared over this pandemic. And I got called up from uh, a friend of mine and a contact here in, in Dubai, um, Jimmy Campbell, who I've known for years, and um, David McRae, who um, I've worked with. He's um, He was in Salt Lake as well. And, you know, they uh, gave me an opportunity to come to Dubai and work on the project, sorry, Doha, and work on the project here. And so... It's a fantastic team. There's some great people here, a lot from Salt Lake and some that I've known over the years. So it was it was a great opportunity to to come back. And you know the thing, and I'm I know I'm going on and on, and I <laughs> I said that's the problem with event people. We like to talk, right? But the one thing that I've heard in the podcasts across the board with um, the, the team from Salt Lake and, and the people that have been on your show is the perseverance, you know, the pivoting, the pausing, the making lemonade out of lemons. I think you put it in one of, one of your shows. And, um, and I think that's the, the beauty of the industry we're in and the beauty of the, the, the people that we all kind of gravitate to is this, we need to persevere. There's no failure in events and there's no failure in our life. And we have to say, okay, how do we make this work? We're in this very weird situation now. Let's try to figure out what's, 
what's the best way to make the best situation out of it? And you can really see that running through the stories that people tell as they're on, on the, on the podcast. And I think it's really important, um, in a time like we're in now and getting through it and hearing the stories, the memories, and remembering that we're not alone in the, the, the world. And I think a lot of people have reconnected with people because of your podcast, because of the pandemic, because it's, it's given people a moment to pause and, and remember what's the most important thing. And it's those connections and the people. So that's a long winded thing to say. I'm in, I'm in Doha having a, you know, a, a fantastic experience here and uh, we'll see what the, the world um shapes up to be in the next year or two. So when is the year of Trish then? 2023? <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to, uh, I'll have to figure it out, I think, but yeah, maybe 2023. So, um, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, you mentioned that you went home for a week and you ended up being, quote unquote, stranded for eight months. Yeah. That actually takes me to my next question. Let's say you're going to a beautiful island for a week and you end up getting stranded there for eight months. And you've got one meal, one film and one album to listen to. What would they be? Well, I you know what? I thought really hard on this question when you sent it to me. And my first thought was, you know, I, I my my mother's Italian. She makes these beautiful Italian dishes. And, you know, growing up, we you know, to me, anytime I go home, she makes a great lasagna and we have, you know, red wine lasagna. And I was going that direction. But then I thought all the people that you have stranded on this island, what a fantastic group of people. Let's have a barbecue. Let's have hot dogs and hamburgers and corn on the cob, like a 4th of July celebration, have veggie burgers for the vegetarians and the vegans. And then I went one step further in my little mind saying, yeah, we probably won't be stranded long with the, the skill sets of the group that you've assembled on this desert island or this island. <laughs> and we would probably, after a great um, fun week of beach volleyball and activities like softball, we'd probably all figure out a way to get ourselves off the island somehow. So that's where I went to with my meal. So <laughs> might be cheating a little bit, but... I have to say... That is brilliant. <laughs> I, it never occurred to me that we would actually all be stranded there together. If we're all stranded there together, it's awesome. And then we could all just bring complimentary food with us, exactly. right? And just have an amazing, uh, amazing buffet or smorgasbord or whatever of all of these wonderful foods. And if we're playing volleyball on the beach and we all want to leave, does that mean we have Wilson? Wilson would come with us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we have this big party. Who's the music? Well, that's where I struggle because I love all different musics. And and the so I would not bring one album, but I'd bring a mix. Right. And the music that I've heard people mention on the podcast are, is brilliant. And, you know, like I think Todd talked about ACDC it'd have some of that. We have Frank Sinatra. We'd have, you know, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. We'd have just a myriad country and Western. And it would just be a, a very fun 
um, kind of mirage of all different, uh, all different music. So again, cheating a little bit, but that's kind of what I thought a part, a little bit of a party mix. So, Hey, it's okay to cheat on this podcast. It's totally fine. What and about the, your film? The movie night. So there's some amazing movies out there. And, but I, I thought that this is one that I did stick to picking just one because everybody else is bringing some great movies along the, with our, our desert Island theme here. But I, I picked the fugitive and that's the one I would contribute. And, you know, it, I went back and forth between a lot of different movies and the one that like I always resonate with is The Fugitive, not because I'm running away from anybody and uh, trying to prove my innocence of being a killer, but it's one I like Harrison um, Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. But it was also to me, it's the perseverance of the uh, of the seeking of truth and finding the truth and bringing that truth to um to the surface and you know and it's the perseverance on Harrison Ford to prove I, I think it was even more than just proving his innocence but doing justice for his wife bringing her killer to justice and then the perseverance of Tommy Lee Jones in bringing um Harrison Ford to to justice. And then at the end, the beauty of him realizing that Harrison Ford is not the, the killer. And it's really, it's really another member. And then bringing that light and the, and the relationship that even without having interaction, that they have this respect for one another. And at the end of the day, you know, the the truth wins out and the the light is shown on 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 that truth and so for me that that means a lot i always my husband um craig he's he always laughs at me because i always like look at the positive and i always want to see the good guy win and you know and he's like why do you watch these these murder mystery movies? I like because I like to see them get caught. I like the bad guy to get caught, and you know. So I, I really like that part about the movie is how that that truth finally comes out in the end. Well, I'm with you. I think it's a great movie. I really like the movie. I will say that. It's interesting that you put it in the, in the, how do I say this? It's interesting that you say, oh, this is about finding the truth because that's what we're going to do on this little podcast here <laughs> is we're going to try to find the truth. <laughs> <laughs> the truth about Trisha Fenton's Salt Lake 2002 experience. It takes us right into the Salt Lake 2002 game. So why don't you start us off by giving us a little bit of background about what you were doing before the games in Salt Lake and how you found yourself working for Slock. Okay. So I have to say that I believe my journey to, to Salt Lake and Slock started um, on my very first event out of university. And um, it was funny. It was the World University Games. And um, and many of you guys know Michael Pitts, who is my first boss and um, a great friend and mentor. And we lost him uh, last year along with... Um, Jerry Anderson. So very sad year for a lot of us in the event world. But so Michael Pitts, um, 
hired me at the World University Games. And when he offered me the position, uh, you know, I was right out of uni and it was something totally not related to what I went to university for. And uh, but we were in a we were in a downturn of the economy in the states. So I call and I was looking at doing volunteer jobs to to kind of network and meet people and stuff like that. And so through that, I got instead of a volunteer job, they offered me a job. And I, as every young kid does when they just get on a university and they don't know what they do, they ask their dad. So I'm like, dad, I go, what, what do you think? And he's like, well, it sounds like a fun summer job, but you're not going to do that for the rest of your life. Right. And so I'm like, okay, I'll do it for a summer. Why not? So I, I took the job and I met some amazing people, you know, and that job led to, um, the world, um, world cup soccer 94, where I met the likes of, you know, Doug Arnott, Tony Vetrano, uh, Mike Woody, we, um, uh, Ron Delma, a bunch of people, really great people in the industry. And then from there, my next step was Atlanta Olympics with another great group of people, Alan Brooks, um, you know, and I met, um, Stuart Ash, um, uh, Jerry Anderson, Todd Barnes. Again, the the list of people is like a who's who in the event industry, and but it built that foundation and that family of who like of who you grew up with. It was kind of like the nobody really was um, pro, like event professionals at that time. We called ourselves, I think, event gypsies, or you know, uh, it was just this group of people that came together and, and tried to put it together and enjoyed each other and enjoyed, um, the work. And it was like, you know, I I was hooked by the camaraderie, the friendships, the, the family that was growing. And so after that, I stepped, I, I met, uh, my next, uh, one of my other mentors, um, Guy Lodge and a good friend of mine. And I had the opportunity to go off to, to Canada to work my first international event, which some people don't think Canada and the U S are international, but we are. So, um, and it finished up and I was like, what am I going to do now? And there were so many of my friends at Salt Lake and there were so many people I knew in Salt Lake. And I had the opportunity that um, Stuart Ash, um, you know, he um, was working there in logistics and I worked logistics in um, the World Cup um, in um, Orlando. So he had a position, you know, with working with him and Ron Delmont and Larry Shank and um, and so offered me a job as I think my title was program manager of special projects because it was originally project manager of special projects. And then we changed that because there was too many projects in the title. So, so that's how I got to um, Salt Lake was this journey that was a matter of meeting friends and colleagues and, and just knowing that people knowing that you could do the job. And I think that, you know, I was offered this job and I was, was special projects. And I have to say, if you have the word special in your title, you should run away from any offer. (laughs) But it was like, it was one of those jobs that I was 
young enough and experienced enough to think, oh, yeah, I could definitely do this. And also young enough and inexperienced enough to not really know what I was getting myself into. But it was it was a really great experience. I mean, I learned so much from just working with Stuart and and Ron and Larry. And there were I kind of reported to all three and um, they all had very different personalities and and guidance and mentorship so it was a it was that's how I got to Salt Lake but I have three questions number one when did you come on board Salt Lake number two what makes a project special and number three what were some of the crazy special projects that you actually had under your purview so um, first, I started in Salt Lake um, in September 2001, and I actually had to go back and look that up because I'm like, I couldn't quite remember when I started. But uh, so it was September um, 2001. And to answer your question, what makes a what made a project special was um, I worked, I reported directly to, um, to Larry and it was in the material planning side of logistics. So um, that's kind of what I concentrated on first was the sport material planning and working through how to, to put that together. And and I also did some special different projects for Stuart directly and for Ron um, Delma. And, and like I said, it was, it was a fantastic learning experience because I think what was so pivotal for me at Salt Lake was that it was, and I think it was not just myself, but many of us, we were going from this like wild, wild west of events where we were all kids and we were all like just getting it done to now we're like moving into this level of responsibility where we're managing like people. It's becoming a little bit more like of a profession instead of just a fun summer job, so to speak. And, um, so I did. So I, I learned so much. I learned that it's not just a matter of being the person in the room that knows the answer, but it's also being able to articulate it in a way that the other people would listen to you. Um, and it's also not always about being the person who says the most. Some ways it's more important to be the person that listens the most. So you understand what is actually happening and being able to analyze that and come up with a, an approach that works. And, you know, and so some of the, I'll tell you one special project that was very interesting and it's, it's, um, it was a conversation that um, Stuart had with Jerry Anderson and, and Jerry was um, in charge of the infrastructure and overlay. And he also had signage under him and they were having some challenges with their signage program. And so he had a conversation with Stuart and Stuart, um, which I, I didn't know actually was that took place, but Stuart came to me one day and he's like, can you go down to the village? They're having some challenges with the, the signage program and deliveries happening. And we need to understand what, what's happening. So I'm like, all right, you know, I'll go down, just 
check it out, see what's going on. So I go down and I, and I meet with the signage um, manager. I meet with the, um, the logistics manager. I'm like, wow, this, this doesn't really seem right to me. So I come back and um, uh, Stuart's like, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I said, it seems like there's a lot of missing pieces. I said, nobody really understands when the signs are getting delivered. They're not sure what the signs and what signs had been ordered for them and what they're supposed to get. So when a sign comes in, a sign delivery comes in, they're not sure what's coming or when it's coming and stuff like this. And I said, I don't know if the, the challenge seems to be that there, there was a breakdown someplace in the communication. And, uh, and what I didn't know is the, the, the woman who had been leading the project had actually left for some personal reasons. And so with that, there was a whole loss of this, um, this information and, um, nobody kind of knew what was going on. So he's like, okay, well, I'm going to, uh, second you to the signage group for a period of time to see if you can sort it out. And I'm like, okay, I guess so. And again, young enough to think I can do it and, or old enough to think I can do it and young enough to not really know what I was getting myself into. So off I went and I met with the signage team. I, I, um, I met with the production guys. I sat in my first signage production meeting and they're talking about producing the signs and the production schedule. And I'm like, and I'm like, well, I said, I know this is my first production meeting. I said, but based on the number of signs you're producing and the number of the number of production companies and the dates that you have, I said, we'll be, um, it's just math, but it will be well into the Paralympics before the last Olympic sign signs get produced. And everybody looks up and they start doing the math and, and they're like, she's right. And I'm like, okay, it's just math. <laughs> so, um, from there we went and, um, there was this guy, um, Maury and myself and the signage team. And we put to, we, we reshuffled the production. We got some more sign companies in, we got um, some additional tools. We, we worked with a logistics crew to get the, you know, the, the delivery expedited. And we actually turned that program around. And I say we, because it was the team. I mean, it was logistics and the signage team all coming together to, to overcome this huge obstacle. And, and I think there was only one venue that we were late in the delivery of the signs. Now, I know we ruffled a few feathers by deliveries without going through the delivery manifest and stuff like that, but, but we got it done. And, you know, it's, so that was one special project that I, that I had. And I have some very dear friends coming out of, of that group of, of people that I'm still very close to this day because you throw people together in a, in a, a situation you have to overcome. And there's a bond that you build that lasts a lifetime. I, I feel. comment and a question following that great story. The comment is, all right, all you kids who are listening are probably more accurately the parents with children who are listening. And those kids say math's not important. Well, math saved the day. So thank you for giving props to math, Tricia. I really appreciate that. And now for the question, were you working at the village during the games themselves? Or 
were you working at a different venue as like a venue logistics manager or what was your responsibility, your role during the games? I was, so I was kind of a floater and I didn't have one particular venue. I just was sent to different locations. I was based at the warehouse. Um, and, um, depending on what, where I was needed, I go to the different venues. So I didn't have a a venue team per se, but it kind of felt like the whole of the warehouse team, the logistics team, they were my venue team. You know, there was, um, many dear friends that I still have that are some of the logistics managers. I I do want to jump back to the math because I'm a true believer that the entire event industry is one big world word math problem. You know, you, you look at it and you're like, okay, well, you have X number of people at a venue. They drink X number of beers. How many toilets do you need? You know, you have X number of people at a venue. They need to leave the venue in 90 minutes. The, the trip time to get them home is X um, time. So how many buses do you need? So that all much of the event industry is common sense and math. I think. I totally agree. I totally agree. And um, if Alan Shaw's listening, he's he's probably shedding tears of joy. Like, <laughs> yes, somebody else finally <laughs> is as passionate about the numbers as I am. So, Alan, if you're listening, uh, this episode is dedicated to you. <laughs> Wonderful. I love Alan, so I'm happy to dedicate that to him. <laughs> all right. Any interesting, unexpected issues arise while you were preparing for or working the games? There was a lot of challenges, and I won't go into to one in particular, but it was one of the biggest growth experiences for me. And I, I had, um, you know, I was leading a team, and it was a fairly big team, but it was also, um, and I think the beauty of Salt Lake is that it was a, a family and it was friends, it was family. We, we, um, worked together, we played together. We had like, we would have had Easter. We, there would have been one group that had, we called the orphans Easter, the orphans Thanksgivings. We, we just spent so much time together. And there was a situation that arose that, um, that was a personnel issue. And I had never dealt with like a real personal like a personnel issue where I had to like be an adult and actually, oh my goodness, this is really going to stretch me beyond what I've ever had to deal with. And, um, and I, and I think that that was one of the most defining moments in my life because you, you had to take in your personality out of it. You had to take and say, okay, you need to be bigger than you want to be to make sure that you grow and this person grows and you can overcome this challenge for the good of everybody in the situation. And, um, and it was, it was, it was one of the most difficult things I did. Um, but it was one of the things that I felt the most supported on by my management, like by, by Stuart and by, by Larry. And, you know, it, it really helped to better me as a person and also help me to go on as a manager in the future and uh, make sure that, 
I can separate, um, you know, friendships or friendships. And I, I think they are the most important things in, in getting a, a project delivered and to make sure that you can take and separate that from your business dealings and ensure that the friendships aren't damaged by things that are happening in, in the workplace. So I think for me, that was probably one of the most challenging things that, that I went through. And I know I'm not giving many um, specifics, but you know, it's uh, it um, because of the issue, it's, it's far better to be less specific, but it was a, a tremendous growth experience. And, and I really honor, you know, uh, Larry and, and Stuart for helping me work through that as a leader and, and grow my leadership skills. And I, and I will say, um, Stuart was amazing um, to help me in, in several ways with with um, leadership and and Larry and and Ron Delmont as well and and changing how you perceive yourself and how you are perceived by others. Well, I think it's interesting you mentioned you like the murder mystery and. Yeah, I'm sure that all the sleuths are going to come out. Who's she talking about? But this is not <laughs> Dateline NBC. We don't have to solve any. We, we don't know where the bodies are buried, so to speak. It's all good. And we're among friends. And you mentioned the importance of family and being like a family working these events. And one of the nice things about doing these events, working with event people, is event people like to plan things outside of work because it's just in your nature to do it. So I'm curious, who was the planner of extracurricular activities? Who was the gatherer that would bring people together and and have little celebrations? Oh my gosh, everybody was. Everybody had a, a role in it. I mean, I, I was you know, you mentioned in the list, there's story time. Right. And, and I'm like, Oh, how can I keep this stories to like an, less than an hour? Because you could go on and on. And I remember, and I was talking to Lisa Friedman about being on this. She's like, you have to, you have to talk about you getting your motorcycle license with Ron Delma and Mike Witty. Right. And I'm like, Oh, that was on one of my memories because like Mike Witty one day he comes in he's like, I have money in my bank account. I need to go get a motorcycle, right? He didn't have a motorcycle license. And he's like, and you need to get your license with me. And Ron Delmont just happened, I think, to be within earshot of it. So all of a sudden, Mike Witty, Ron Delmont, and I were all going off to motorcycle classes together. And we all got our motorcycle licenses. And then, um, and then, uh, Mike got a motorcycle, but I don't know if Ron Delma ever did get a motorcycle. I didn't get a motorcycle, but uh, I do have my license. And then I think that, um, you know, we had the painting parties that um, I think um, have been discussed. And that was great. I can't remember who set up the the softball league, but we had this fantastic softball league um, that we'd all go out and play softball every week. And, you know, and it was, it just seemed like every weekend, every day, every evening, there was some sort of um, gathering and activity. And, 
You know, we as logistics, we had a couple of them. They had these wannabe camps that we as a group, we did um, an aerial wannabe camp. And I remember because it was it was at in in Park City and um, we went up there. And um, so I'm a skier and a couple of a couple other people were skiers on here. So you're going down the big jump into the the water and um, and Jim Wright which we didn't know at the time. He, he was a gymnast when he was younger. So anyway, so all of us are going down the, the ski jump in perfect form that because we, we skied. Right. And then we'd go off the jump and then it looked like we were, uh, it looked like some sort of cartoon of like the arms flailing and the legs going (laughs) and we'd land in the water and Jim, Wright, He would go down the ramp and like, we're like oh my gosh because he's a a skier but he's not like he wasn't at the time as strong of a skier as he was by the end of Salt Lake and we're like and his legs are wobbling he goes down and he goes off the jump and perfect like aerials and flips and twists and we're like holy cow right it was just amazing but we had a couple of of those activities we also all went out on snowmobiling one one weekend as a team builder, we all just went out snowmobiling and, and I was looking at photos and there was probably about 30 snowmobiles and we're just all going out into the, into the, the, the park city in the, in in the woods there. And yeah, it was, I think there was something that there was always somebody organizing somebody, something, David Clark, David Clark was the one who did the, um, painting parties. He was on your podcast, I believe. So, yeah. So I remember going to that and I was one of those people who thought that we were going to help him paint his house. And then (laughs) next thing we knew we're downstairs painting, you know, and I remember going to the trolley wing company after work with Roger Baugh and, you know, hiking. It was just such an active group that, you know, we all would come together. So anyway, so I think everybody played a part in gathering us together and, and building that community. Don't you think that's important? Uh, events can be so draining physically and mentally and emotionally that if you're just focused on planning and delivering the event, I mean, you can really just lose it. But if you have these, if, if you have a little bit of a balance where you've got friends that are almost like family that you're doing all of these things with after hours, it, it, it makes it bearable. I, I a hundred percent agree. Uh, it's, and I think that's the one tragic thing about the pandemic. And, you know, coming here, I, I've known, I knew uh, quite a few people when I got here because of the past events that I've worked on. But the, because so many things are closed, we can't go out to a bar and get together. We can't get in groups more than five people outdoors. So that, that whole you know, the out of the office talking and discussions and, and coming together and not just to have fun, but to, to get on the same page and, and to work out things and just exchange ideas and exchange what's happening. So you see more here and and I think it's everywhere, you, you know, 
there's a lot more silos because of the lack of integration with people. And, you know, and we, and we reach out and we chat and, you know, but that's in my mind, a critical part of what, um, why the events are successful is because you do have that out of the office exchange of ideas and discussions and you, you know, you're more creative, you're on the baseball field or softball field and you're, you're talking about something and something pops up and they're like, Oh, I didn't know you were doing that. And, you know, you go back into the office and you're like, Oh, this is happening. And, and there's a lot less silos because of the interchange of ideas outside. Whereas in the office, you're in meeting after meeting after meeting, and you may not interact with the the same group of people that you're interacting with socially. So I a hundred percent agree with you, Kristen. It's I think it's one of the critical parts of the success of the of the event industry. Well, I hope that this pandemic will abate sooner rather than later and we can get back to gathering again like we once did. You you kind of said, well, not kind of said what you said is we called it story time. I called it story time my email. This has been awesome story time. I feel like a little kid, you're in a room, you see this, right? I mean, I have four children and when they were little, you'd go put them to bed and my wife would go in there, read a story and the kid would inevitably say, tell me another. So (laughs) (laughs) I know you've got stories on your list, Trisha, and you could probably talk all day long, but what else have you got on your list to tell us? So, oh my goodness, just, um, just to make it quick, cause I know that you probably want to get back to your kids on this, uh, on this Easter weekend. But, um, so one of the other wannabe camps that we had, I, I really, really wanted to try, um, the skeleton, right? I wanted to do the bobsled and the skeleton, but, um, unfortunately I never got a chance to do the bobsled, but I did go to the wannabe camp in for skeleton. And as hard as I tried to convince somebody else to do it with me, nobody would do it. But my roommate at the time, Holly and Mike, Mike Whitty, they, they came to cheer me on. Right. And so I'm like, I'm like, this is going to be so great. Right. So I get up there and we started, I think it was the, the women's or the junior start. I can't remember if it was the women's or the junior start. And so I'm like, this is going to be great. So then I get on the sled and I start going down the first one. And I'm like, I start gaining speed and gaining speed. I'm like, Oh my God, I go, I hope I don't die. This is the most frightening thing I've done, but it was such a great experience. And I think Salt Lake afforded those opportunities to experience life as an athlete for people that um, may not have ever had those experiences of, of careening down the, the skeleton um, course. You know, I never did get up to the Olympic speeds, although Mike kept cheering me on every run. You need to go faster, just a little faster. You need to break 75 miles per hour. And I'm like, I don't think I want to, but it was, it was amazing. And the only other story I want to bring up is that the um, Salt Lake was where I got my dog, Trey, who and he ha- he's not with us um, any longer, but he was such a fantastic dog. And the funny thing about Trey was because he was adopted by 
everybody. So he, like, I'd get calls up and they're like, um, I don't know if you remember the lazy moon, which was a pub that we went to by the office. And some of the guys would call me like, uh, and because I worked, I'd drive Trey to doggy daycare. He'd hang out in doggy daycare and I'd pick him up after work. And so sometimes I'd be working and I'd get a call from one of the guys like, Hey, we're going to go to the lazy moon. Can we go pick up Trey? He's a chick magnet. We need to get him. So we, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not pimping out my dog. right? So, but they, it was such a, a community that, you know, he had like 700 owners and people that loved him and they'd pick him up. And, and he was such a great dog. And, and I just felt like he was the, the, he was, he belonged as much to my friends as to me. And, uh, and I had him for many, many years and he was such a great dog. So one of the, the other happiest things that came out of Salt Lake amongst all the friends that my friendships that I built there. All right. Well, we'll give props to Trey for being the perfect wingman there at the Lazing Moon. <laughs> I think that's awesome. And kudos to you for go, doing the skeleton. I want to know who came up with the bright idea. Hey, let's let's go down uh, an ice roller coaster on a cookie sheet head first. I know. I'm like, as I'm doing it, I'm like, well whose who's bright idea was it to come up with it and why would I ever have thought I wanted to do it but I I did it so yeah I give those athletes many a lot of credit oh, yeah I give them huge props it doesn't television doesn't do it justice right when you when you see it on no. television you see you see an athlete just whizzing by in the bobsled or around a curve or and it looks impressive, but when you actually see them doing it in person, I never did it myself, so I can't imagine what it's like. I don't have firsthand experience, but just seeing the tracks in person and seeing the athletes going down the tracks, I got to give them mad respect. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, what's your goosebump moment? Oh, you know what? Um, my goosebump moment is... The- <sighs> It's so hard. I think it's a culmination of all the experiences. I had my sister and my brother-in-law, my mom and dad, my brother, my sister-in-law, and my nieces and nephews all come and see and be part of the um, part of visiting and seeing the Olympics. And I think that to me was a goosebump moment when, you know, my little nephew was like, oh my gosh. And just being able to see the bobsled and be able to see the figure skaters and, and just their awe in the event and going to the medals plaza with my sister and brother-in-law and, you know, um, and, and being part of that energy and the excitement. And, and I did have the opportunity to, to go with a, a, a good friend of mine to closing ceremonies. And I think my goosebump moment is all that energy and all the excitement and, and, and you don't, it, it's so hard to put that in words, to explain what it's like to, to anybody if they haven't been part of it. And also knowing that you were part of making this happen. You were part of the fact that your little nephew is in awe of these skaters and these 
Olympians and and the Peri and the Paralympians, because I think that the Paralympics to me is so special. And you know, the athletes um, just overcome so much personally to persevere to get to to their events. You know, and you know, and to be part of that and see that and deliver that. Those are my goosebump moments. Is seeing that. Um, joy on the faces of of people that are are seeing it and being part of it. Well, I'm with you 100 there, and it was great that you were able to make the games a family affair. As many of our guests here on the podcast have done, they had they had spouses or children or grandparents or parents or siblings come and spectate or volunteer or work in some capacity. So I think that's a great goosebump moment. Well, the Olympic Paralympic Games in Salt Lake, they eventually come to an end and then life moves on for you, Tricia. So what was next after the Salt Lake 2002 Games, your journey since then? And maybe to wrap us up, you can kind of take us out on some of the lessons you learned along the way. You've shared, shared several great lessons already, but if you can kind of wrap us up with some life and career advice that you gained from Salt Lake, or from other places along your event journey, that would be awesome. Okay. So after, after Salt Lake, I, I stayed in the event world and I've been traveling and, and journeying through it, um, since then. And it's been an amazing journey and I have been so blessed with being able to work in so many different diverse countries and with different diverse people um, I, uh, went on to Manchester right afterwards and then continued the journey. I, I worked in different, um, avenues of the event industry too. So I, I, you know, my, um, career was in logistics in Salt Lake. I went on, I've done, um, venue management and broadcast. That's, um, one of the the things um, I was doing in Expo and in London Olympics um, in Vancouver, I worked with um, I was head of government service integration, and uh, that's where I actually, when I met my husband, was during the Vancouver Olympics, and it was so amazing to be able to to share that experience of my event with him, and um, you know when we went to London. He actually, he's a, he's a pilot. So when we were in Vancouver, he commuted, um, because he was able to do that. When we went to London, he took off and he actually worked us in, in the event world as well. And we totally enjoyed our experience in, in London. Um, and he worked in logistics, which was funny. And so he knows a lot of the, the same people through that experience. And, um, you know, so it's, it's been an amazing journey and I'm so blessed to have met all the people and have all the experiences. And, you know, we talk about it all the time and we're like, you know what, when I, I don't, when you're in school and somebody's like, where do you picture yourself in five years, 10 years, 20 years? This is not what I would have ever pictured. It's so far, it's far better than I would have ever imagined. And I think 
that would be a life lesson that I um, would give is that to kids is like, open yourself up to, to possibilities. I mean, I had my whole idea of where I wanted to go after Salt Lake and it was to World Cup Tokyo and Korea. And and I didn't end up going that way. I went a whole different direction, but it catapulted me into a lot, uh, another avenue of the events and a whole different sphere of friends and colleagues. And, and it was it. So you have to just open yourself up to to not thinking you know what the universe has in store for you but oh to say okay you know what it some something it's meant to be and this is you know i need to embrace those moments in time and and let and and work with the universe to um to to guide me in that i would say my other words of advice was I believe that part of why Salt Lake was so successful, and I don't know if it was because it had, like, we had the um, the scandal because we had 9/11 because we were all coming like to a point in our career that you know we were still many of us were really still very young in the career path and and we were changing from this like wild, wild west to a, a profession. Um, but I think it was so successful because everybody kind of put their egos aside. There weren't egos. People weren't coming in here, coming into meetings saying, I know this is the way it needs to be done. I, you know, it's been done this way. It's always been done this way. This is the way it will work. I think everybody came together and it didn't matter who you were. People listened to each other. And I think putting your ego aside and listening and listening to what everybody brings to the table, because it doesn't matter what your background or your experience, or, you know, everybody has something contribute to a a discussion and a conversation and you have to be true and genuine to yourself and do what you feel is, is right and follow that, um, in intuition. And, and I think if you do that, then you can't go wrong. I mean, you, People will succeed and you will find your path. That's that's what I believe. And maybe that's really so philosophical or, or whatever, but that's what I've I've done my whole career and it's served it served me well. I've worked hard at doing my best at the job that I'm given and the opportunity that presents itself. And even if it's not where I thought I was supposed to go, I'm meant to be here for a reason. And whatever life lesson this situation is supposed to teach me, I'm going to embrace it and and really listen to to the situation and the people around me. I think it's fantastic advice. You know, to the first point that you made, you don't know. Uh, you, you came out of college and you didn't know. That the, you didn't think. Oh, you didn't foresee. I'll be doing this in five or 10 or 20 years. I came out of college. I, I, I graduated in accounting. I thought I was going to be an accountant. <laughs> I had no idea this world even existed. I had no clue that it even existed. So it's, I think it's a great point to, to open yourself up to possibilities because there's a huge world out there and there are all kinds of really cool things that people can do. And when you grow up and you go to college, you don't know what those possibilities are. So mm-hmm. I appreciate you sharing that very much. And then setting the, setting the ego aside, 
I think that was really, really awesome in Salt Lake. I agree with you. I think it was like that. I didn't feel egos when I was there. I give a lot of credit to the leadership of Salt Lake for fostering an environment that allowed people to be themselves and, and didn't feel like they had to have ego to succeed. And I, so I, I think that's fantastic advice that you've given. And I really appreciate you coming on and taking the time. Uh, before we conclude, anything else that we need to catch? Anything else on your list? Oh my goodness. I think we've covered so much, so much. It's been fantastic to, to, to be part of it. And to think that the only thing I can say is this was supposed to be a fun summer job. So, you know, it's, it's been a fantastic journey through the, through the years. So, and thank you for, for capturing all these moments from everybody, because it's certainly a wonderful trip down memory lane. And, and I agree with you. I think the leadership in Salt Lake has a lot to be credited for in regards to, um, putting egos aside and, and getting the team just to work together as a team. Well, I hate to say story time has come to an end because I keep listening to stories all day long, Trish, but if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing there in Doha, or if they just want to reconnect with you and talk about memories of other events, what's the best way for them to make that connection? Um, probably my email. Um, and, uh, you know, that's probably the first best point of, of contact or on LinkedIn. Um, my email, I'm super old school. So it's fentontf at AOL.com or I have my fentontf at gmail.com. So either one reaches me. I'm more active on my AOL, although it's super old school. <laughs> Hey, I'm with you on the old school. I still have a Hotmail account, which I use for all of my purchases or buy stuff online. It's always through the Hotmail account. Don't be ashamed of me doing old school. It's funny, when you're talking about the fugitive, I actually had an old school moment there because I was going to ask, is that a movie that you stop and watch whenever you're, you're changing channels, you know, you see it? And I'm thinking, am I like one of the last six people on the planet that still have cable and watch television <laughs> and switch channels and stop? I mean, that's totally old school. I'm embarrassed to admit it. So I didn't even ask the question because I'm like, who does that? Who has cable and changes channels on a television? Well, I'm like one of the last six remaining people to still have a cable subscription. So there you go. That's all right. All right, Tricia, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Listeners, please like and subscribe, and we'll talk with you again soon. Tricia, thanks so much. Thank you.